This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 9th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Free speech on campus received heightened attention in 2015. Greg Lukianoff, president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, discussed with me last week about the recently concluded debate on campus speech held at Cato Unbound. 2015 was a big year for campus speech and right. controversies surrounding it, but you argue that this has been a long time in coming yeah. and that the architecture of speech restrictions, uh, at least in part because of uh, the Federal Office of uh, Civil Rights and the Justice Department, uh, that this has in some sense been a long time coming. Absolutely. And that was one of the fun things about writing for Cato Unbound is I got to take a sort of a 30,000-foot view of it from, you know, uh, FIRE's been around since 1999 now, and we've watched all of these different trends. And it's been amazing watching how much more the media is paying attention to uh, campus free speech issues. And in some ways, I think it's a little bit, there's a little bit of a sense of like, where have you guys been, you know, for, from FIRE's perspective? Certainly Cato and then certainly Walter Olson has always been paying attention to this issue, but outside of, you know, outside of Cato, um, it doesn't get nearly enough attention. But for my entire career, the, sad, the, the, the reason why it's getting more attention now is one that, uh, you know, although conservatives have complained about liberal, uh, about um, political correctness for a very long time, um, it's starting to come from people. This year, it started to come from people like Jonathan Chait, and uh, you, you know, it, it appears in, in the Nation and in Vox and in New York Magazine. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why they're paying greater attention to it is one, it's starting to affect them, um, and, and they think it's kind of gotten out of control. But two, the media pays a lot more attention when it's students um, uh, who are pushing the, uh, you know, this person can't speak here. Um, and I really noticed this. I really saw a, a major shift start right around the time that that the um, the protests of. Uh, at, at Brown um, related to Ray Kelly coming uh, t- about two years ago. And for almost all of my career, um, the main, the, you're most likely to be censored on a college campus by usually a mid-level administrator. Um, and a lot of times they weren't all that ideological, but they thought, oh, you know, I'm, I've been told by the federal government in the form of the Department of Education, I've been told by our risk management consultants that I really need to overreact to, 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 uh, to offensive speech um, to keep us from being sued. And so, and amazingly, and people really need to know this, the best constituency for freedom of speech on a college campus up until about two years ago had consistently been the students. They tend to get to, they tended to get freedom of speech and due process for that matter better than professors did and certainly much better than administrators. And something's really changed in the last two years and, it, and it's really caught public attention when you start having the paradox of having these you know uh, students overcoming the reputation for being apathetic and having protests all around the country, which I think are great, but I also find it incredibly tragic that a lot of these protests the end result of what they want is, you know, safe zones that are free from press. They want new speech codes. They want, uh, you know, to decide. Uh, they want to infringe on academic freedom, and they want sort of pseudo psychological counseling. So, contra that, you note here, yep. uh, eight years ago, seventy-five percent of the institutions we surveyed maintained policies worthy of fires, red light rating meaning they clearly and substantially restricted freedom of speech. Since then, the percentage of schools with red light speech codes has steadily declined each year. So um, explain that. Well, you know, that's mostly just because we, uh, they kept on getting sued. Uh, you know, FIRE published, we started publishing our speech codes um, ratings, uh, you know, years and years ago, but we started issuing a report around 2006. 
And, you know, uh, the Christian litigation uh, group, uh, the Alliance Defense Fund, has sued a lot of schools. Uh, The ACLU has sued some schools. FIRE um, has also brought a lot. We now have a big uh, lawsuit uh, program uh, uh, headed by uh, Bob Corn Revere, famous First Amendment litigator. And so we've filed, I think, 11 just in the past year and a half. And so far, we've uh, we've gotten rid of the speech codes at all the schools we sued, and we're still in the process of, of, of lawsuits with Chicago State University, et cetera. So those get, getting from 75% to a little bit below half was a really hard one. But what I'm afraid of is given the combination of the federal government for years now demanding a completely unconstitutional definition of harassment that would eviscerate, that, would, that could potentially make every school in the country a red light, uh, red light speech code school, um, and apparently now increase student affection for, you know, quote unquote, enlightened censorship, it's, it, it creates a, a situation which may, maybe this, you know, the, 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 uh, my optimism wasn't warranted a couple of years ago. Now you also note here, uh, this brings us to the institution that is perhaps most responsible yeah. for exacerbating the problems of speech codes and hair trigger censorship, the yeah. Department of Education's uh, Office of, for Civil Rights. I'm sorry, I, I meant, I said Department of Justice earlier. I meant Department of Education. Yeah. So what has been their role in sort of crafting this architecture where overreaction becomes a more normal response among college administrators. Yeah. And one thing that was great that I was able to do in this article by taking the long view is talk about how the Office of Civil Rights, the Department of Education, um, you know, has always uh, told, or at least for the past couple decades, told universities they need to clamp down on harassment. But to their credit, back in 2003, um, they realized that universities were claiming the federal government made me do it every time we pass a ridiculous speech code. They came out with a letter of clarification saying, no, 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 no. We don't even have the power uh, to make you pass a speech code, certainly at a public university, not even a private university. We can't recommend that people violate uh, First Amendment norms. Um, And that all changed um, under the Obama administration. And it started with uh, things that concerned us about um, limiting due process, particularly uh, with regards to harassment and assault cases. Uh, But then just a couple of years ago, uh, they, they issued something that they touted as a blueprint for the entire country. Which named, uh, which redescribed harassment. They took away all of the protections that are there pretty specifically to make sure that harassment doesn't become this sort of catch-all that completely swallows uh, freedom of speech. Um, they took away all these uh, requirements, like it be severe, pervasive, and persistent. They even went after the idea that it has to be uh, both subjectively um, and uh, offensive and offensive to a reasonable person. It was sort of like the objective standard. They, they explicitly took the reasonable person standard out, and then just said, "Well, harassment now is just." Uh, um, uh, sexual uh, verbal conduct of a sexual nature that's uh, that's unwelcome. And keep in mind that uh, everything that the, the uh, that OCR does ends up being applied not just to sexual situations, not just to gender situations. It quickly gets applied to about seventeen different categories. You know, like and we're talking about when, when they when OCR got to have fun with University of Montana's code, they added in things like political belief. So basically, like anything unwelcome on any nature is is the way this ends up being interpreted. And you know, the the and this is coming from a very activist Department of Education. They they investigate they're investigating something like one hundred and fifty schools now. And universities have always been freaked out by OCR, but now they have reason to be. So really to get at the sort of – certainly there's an ideological component that you have to fight. But right now there's something very rational about universities over-policing speech because they feel like they're going to lose federal funding if they don't. And for universities, it's it's sort of a – because of fear – the administrator's role is to just be the banal enforcer who – as you as you note, probably not that 
uh, ideological necessarily. Not not necessarily. Sometimes it is, but um, but the you know I refer to this this uh, factor of OCRs being the quote unquote secret engine. Um, the reason why when people look at some of these cases, and we have truly ridiculous cases at Fire that we've talked about for years, um, they go like, how on earth could a, a university think that you know someone having a, a sex issue of, of of the student newspaper having uh, has to, that that newspaper has to be banned? Um, and it's partially because all the incentives right now are on the side of overreacting. And unfortunately, what fires realized, because we primarily have always fought things out through the uh, court of public opinion, is that in order to sort of rebalance the incentives, we have to sue a lot more. And I think we have to sue a great deal more in order to rebalance that. But ultimately, the solution and there's some really simple ones. I mean, if Congress would just tell the Department of Education there is a definition uh, that the Supreme Court approves of, of of harassment, if you're talking about student-on-student harassment that does not seriously implicate freedom of speech, why don't we make that the official definition of harassment? That would eliminate all the amb- ambiguity. But meanwhile, without it, the, the, uh, I feel like the Department of Education is out of control. All right. So uh, on that note, yeah. you uh, throw in a plug here in your essay, yep. and I'll, I'll ask you to do it again here. Uh, you say just one student or professor can protect free expression yep. for thousands or even hundreds of thousands by filing a lawsuit against his or her school with the help of FIRE's Stand Up for Free Speech litigation project. So what does that do? Absolutely. Yeah. As I said, we have to re, we have to rebalance the incentives. And so finding students or professors who are willing to stand up to their speech codes is essential. But Right now, even more importantly, figuring out ways that we can directly challenge um, OCR overreach. And what's what, what, what's so frustrating for me is that you know I, I talk to a lot of deans of law schools and I speak at a lot of universities, and I always get someone saying, you know, don't quote me on this, but um, the, it's impossible to comply with what the Department of Education wants. They're completely out of control. They're making up new powers. And I'm like, okay, why don't you sue them? <laughs> why don't you have your university uh, be, uh, challenge it directly? And no universities come forward that wants to do that. And if we had that, um, I mean, some of the powers the Department of Education is claiming it simply does not have. There was an amazing exchange between Lamar Alexander and and the head of a top person at OCR, where they were both saying, well, this isn't rulemaking, so these aren't really rules, but then asking, um, but universities have to follow them. And then, of course, the answer is yes. Um, So we really need to take on the Department of Education. I think that we can't really make a lot of progress until these incentives get uh, Get, get realigned. So uh, I would encourage uh, listeners to read the various essays at uh, Cato Unbound. That's Cato-Unbound.org. Uh, and I note that because Eric Posner here uh, writes a response essay, and he's not here to talk about it. Right. So I, again, encourage readers to, to take a look at it themselves. But there's something that jumped out at me here. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, Lukianoff imagines that free speech is a good in itself. In fact, freedom of speech is a means to an end and our understanding of free speech must be derived from the end that we seek to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that is anathema to uh, most libertarians who view uh, liberty as the end. Right. You know, I, and I think that uh, really I, I encourage people to read the debate. I don't want to, you know, criticize Eric since he doesn't have a chance to defend himself here. But I really would love to know what you think about some, some of the arguments that he makes um, when it comes to you know liberty being in of itself, or or whether or not it's, um, or particularly with regards to freedom of speech, or I mean, whether to or the not, extent that per- government has a purpose, liberty is that purpose right, for, li- for most libertarians. Right, but also uh, or whether or not it's just simply useful. I, the the answer is the same for both. You know, essentially you. 
the idea that you can have an effective university that says that we can't have a, a, a disagreement on opinion at that university is ridiculous. That's a, that's a theological seminary and probably actually more bound than a theological seminary would be. Um, so you know, it's one of these things. My overall philosophy on why freedom of speech is important is it's important to know the way the world actually looks. And this always brings you back to the idea that it's foolish to think that you're somehow safer. You're somehow better off not knowing what people actually think. Well, that sounds like an end. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so in, in terms of where to go from here, obviously uh, standing up for free speech mm -hmm. as a litigation uh, matter is something. Yeah. But, but who should people be uh, reading uh -huh. and understanding to appreciate uh, the value of the, the very high value of freedom of speech? Especially for students, right? I mean, I'm working on a uh, on a new book um, that whenever I can find, you know, my copious spare time, I, I really want to throw something together. Partially because, you know, I'm a huge fan of On Liberty. Um, I think it's incredibly clearly written, but it's still incredibly clearly written for 1859, you know, England. And I think that so many of these ideas that we take for granted um, uh, that people understand understand about freedom of speech, they're just never really presented to students anymore. So I feel bad for some of these students who are protesting, um, and the, and they seem to think that freedom of speech is not, um, you know, somehow against minority rights. It's like, no, 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 no. Um, the majority rights in a democracy are protected by the vote. You only need freedom of speech, a special protection of freedom of speech for minority opinions. But this has never been explained to an entire generation of students who, who have a real big soft spot for enlightened censorship. So I think some of the best things out there to read, certainly Jonathan Rauch's Kindly Inquisitors. I actually think one of the best anti-political correctness books ever written is uh, Stephen Pinker's uh, the, the Blank Slate, which talks about sort of this ridiculous um, kind of idea that uh, either everything has to be nature or nurture. And he make, makes the point that nobody believes that it's all one or the other. That's a, that, that, that's a straw man that's ridiculous. Um, hopefully they would read mine and John Haidt's article in The Atlantic called The Coddling of the American Mind, basically making the argument that, that a lot of the sort of pseudo-psychology on which uh, the, the, a lot of these theories of fragility are based on, they're not just uh, contrary to um, current psychological thinking with regards to like what will make you uh, happy or what will prevent you uh, de depression and anxiety. They're actually the exact opposite of what you would want to teach someone um, if you didn't want them to be depressed or anxious. But I do think, and as for people who are writing, you know, some of the fundamentals out there, I think Ken White over at Popat does a fantastic job. Certainly, the you know people like Mark Randazza are really uh, great to read. Um, so, but I do think that we have to make sure before we sort of throw up our hands in frustration that we're not you know mocking students uh, for not understanding freedom of speech because it's never been explained to them. We have to have some kind of campaign to make sure that they get it, that essentially, you know, intelligent, humble, smart people are the ones who most believe in freedom of speech because they have to hear people with whom they disagree. Greg Lukianoff is president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Read the full debate at Cato Unbound and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.